Well, good morning, Calvary Baptist Church of Santa Barbara. It is a joy uh, for me to be with you, worshiping with you this morning. I bring you greetings from the distant land of New Jersey, the land of bagels and other notable cultural factors. Uh, but I should also report to you that, uh, that the gospel is thriving in the state of New Jersey. And uh, similar to, I think, the situation here in California, we find a complex social environment. There's a lot going on uh, politically. There's a lot going on in, uh, in the, the culture. But God's word hasn't changed. And praise God, his church is growing there, just like it's growing here. And so we're so excited to hear reports. And uh, it's a highlight for me at least once a year to be able to come and to see you face to face and get to see uh, the, the progress and advance of the gospel here um, in the community of Santa Barbara. And so just know that there are, there are Christians in New Jersey, number one, praise the Lord. And, uh, and some of those believers are praying for you and praying for the advancement of the gospel here. So uh, it's just a, a real treat for us to be with you and uh, to worship together with you. So if you have that Bible handy, we, I, I got homework. I came here to visit my family, and I was given homework. And we're going we're gonna to continue in the 1 Corinthians 15 series, okay? Or the 1 Corinthians series in chapter 15. So if you have a Bible handy, we were just singing about uh, this wondrous mystery, the hope that we have uh, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Continuing right on in our, in our series in 1 Corinthians, you're looking for 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're, do, we're doing verses 20 to 28 this morning, all right? Verses 20 down to 28. And I'm going to read these verses for us right now, just the, in, in their entirety. And then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as we look into his word together. So you can follow along there in your Bible. This is the word of God for us today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. We thank you for the truths that we have just been singing about, the wondrous mystery of the gospel. And Lord, we ask for your help this morning as we seek to think a little bit more deeply about the results of the resurrection. Lord, we pray that you would help us even as we work through a passage like this, which makes a forceful argument, that we would not only track the argument and understand the Apostle Paul's main point, but that, Lord, we would see how it applies to our lives, how it changes us, what we should believe, how we should be different as a result of your word. So, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would do his work now, that work of conviction of sin, of teaching us the truth, and of leading us 
in transformed lives. And we ask for these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, back in 1563, kind of in the second wave of the Protestant Reformation, there was a movement to produce a summary of the content of the gospel, the message of the Bible. And these summaries, there were multiples that were created at that time, right? These summaries are called catechisms. They're tools for teaching, especially young people, the truths of the gospel. In 1563, the Heidelberg Catechism was born. And it's unique amongst catechisms that are a result of the Reformation because of its clarity and because of its passion. It's, it's a catechism that reflects a heart for the Lord. It's not cold and stale. It's, it's bold. It reflects a passion for Christ. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? Now, if you've been here walking through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians here at, at CBSB, you would recognize that the Corinthian church may have struggled to answer that question. They were not a great church. Can I get an amen? Can we amen that? I don't know. Are we allowed to? I mean, there were not good things happening there. It was a church marked by worldliness, a church marked by compromise, a church marked by giving in to sin, a church that had certainly struggled losing sight of the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians has to do a lot of correcting, a lot of teaching, a lot of reminding, right? And as he does so, he's, he's urging the Corinthian believers to grab hold of that glorious gospel that we were just singing about. What is your only comfort in life and death? Who knows what the Corinthians would have said to that question. But lest we're being a little unfair, we probably should acknowledge that on many days, you and I struggle with that same question. What is my only comfort in life and death? Some days I might say, my only comfort is that I finally got the new iPhone. (laughs) Or my only comfort is that my kids are successful and finally feed themselves. They're off my insurance. Praise the Lord. (laughs) My only comfort is that I I passed that class that was so difficult that I was not looking forward to taking, or that I lost X pounds, or that I can bench X pounds, right? What is your only comfort in life and death? Well, that I live in in fill-in-the-blank, right? Neighborhood, zip code. Or what is my only comfort in life and death? That I retired early. that I made it there. It's so easy for us, it's so easy for us to lose sight of the gospel. And the fact is that as much as the Corinthian church struggled, the Holy Spirit has gifted us this passage in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15 because you and I will struggle. We will lose sight of the gospel. We will lose sight of the daily relevance of the death and, crucially, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, when we put our faith in Christ, because of his death and resurrection, our sins are forgiven. We praise God for that. Isn't that just what we looked at last week in the previous section in chapter 15, that if Christ hasn't been raised, we're toast. Now, that's my paraphrase, okay, of it. But if Christ hasn't been raised, then we're still in our sins, the Apostle Paul tells us. He tells us that also those who have fallen asleep in Christ will have just perished for nothing. And if we only hope in Christ in this life, then, well, of all people, we are most to be pitied. 
So yes, the resurrection of Jesus means that those who put their faith in him are forgiven of their sins, but that's not the end of the work of the gospel. That is not the sum total of the work that Jesus is doing on planet earth and that he's doing in your life. Salvation is about more than just the forgiveness of our sins. It's certainly not about less, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is about more than just the forgiveness of our sins. The resurrection is central to the rest of the story. But what is the rest of the story? What about saints who have died in ages past? Well, what about me? What's the rest of the story for me? What's the rest of the story for Christ's church? That's where the Apostle Paul turns his attention here in verse 20 of chapter 15. So let's take a look at it. All right, we're going to walk through this section in in three chunks, picking it up there in verse 20 once again. And the previous section, uh, as Pops led you last week to consider, right, it's a hypothetical, the hypothetical argument, if Christ had not been raised, then we're still in our sins. Okay, so that was hypothetical if he had not been raised. And in verse 20, we return to reality. So let's pick it up here in verse 20, and that's reflected there in the ESV, the first three words, but in fact, okay, but in actuality, okay, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This verse establishes the anchor for the entire discussion of this paragraph, okay? In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul's already covered the eyewitnesses. There's already been a reminder of the fact that this is one of those incontrovertible proofs of history that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. Okay, he did rise from the dead. But notice in verse 20 how he further describes this resurrected Christ. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is a technical term from the Old Testament, okay? So if you happen to do your devotions this week in Leviticus 23, forgive me, but I'm going to just do a little reminder for everybody of what the first fruits are so we can be on the same page and understand what Paul's talking about here. So if we go back to Leviticus 23, there's instructions given for the observance of the Passover feast. So you remember the Passover feast where there's the celebratory sacrificing of a lamb, right? And so that sacrificing of the lamb, the shedding of the blood of the lamb accomplishes the forgiveness of sins for God's people. And at the end of that time, okay, this would be uh, in early fall, okay, so late September, maybe early October, you would also have at the end of that week of celebrating the Passover, the offering of the first fruits, which is a technical term, the first uh, harvested uh, produce from the fall uh, harvest, okay? And so they would be brought in and they would be offered and they would bring in a bundle of the, the wheat harvest and they would, it's called a sheaf, okay? And they would bring in the sheaf to the priest and the priest would take this sheaf, this bundle of the first fruits, and he would wave it in this ceremony before he offered it to the Lord. And so this was actually a, a communal sacrifice, the offering of the first fruits. So everybody gathered together to do it. And that sacrifice was basically an acknowledgement that all of the harvest that they would bring in comes from God. And so they would offer that first fruits because it rightly belongs to the Lord. And that was basically a, if if you'll allow me, a faith-driven guarantee that there was going to be the rest of the harvest. 
So we're giving the first fruits to the Lord because he's the priority in Leviticus 23, verses 10 to 12. And then the idea is that, of course, God is faithful and he will continue to grant there to be harvest as we continue to harvest in the fields that will meet our needs, meet the needs of our community, meet the needs of the nation, okay? So this, this special sacrifice, this waving of the first fruits, right? It was the community gathering, honoring the Lord, and acknowledging that what God has started of giving us this harvest, he will continue until the harvest is complete, all right? That's Leviticus 23, 10 to 12, just the short version, okay? So here, the Apostle Paul grabs onto that imagery, and he says, the resurrected Christ... Because Jesus rose from the dead, he is, in verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus, in his resurrection, is the guarantee of the full harvest. He's the guarantee of the full harvest. Jesus is the first, full harvest to follow. That's the math in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28. Jesus is the first, full harvest to follow. And so there's an importance here in the fact that Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead, but that resurrection is just the first installment of this much bigger work that God is doing. And so the Apostle Paul wants to develop this and explain what the rest of this work is. Now, notice in verse 20 again at the very end that he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul uses this metaphor for death of sleep. He's not talking about um, or teaching that when believers die, they go into an unconscious state. Uh, we already covered that in 1 Corinthians, and it's referred to again in 2 Corinthians, that once you die, you're in the presence of the Lord. Okay, so that's, that's the reality. When a believer dies, they're ushered into the presence of the Lord um, in their spirit, and praise God for that. So, but, but the sleep metaphor is used here because... <laughs> Just like you when you're taking a nap, and listen, we, we've had a family gathering this week, okay? And there are 13 human beings in this house that we're in, and we praise the Lord for that house. However, if you, if you try to take a nap in that house this week, I can guarantee you, you will be awoken from your slumber, okay? And I'm saying that as gently as I possibly can, all right? And it's mostly my children and my brother's children. It's their faults, right? Uh, because they will wake you from your sleep. Listen, if you take a nap, you will wake up, right? That's the idea. If you go to sleep, you will, you will wake up. So the Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of sleep for death because when believers die, they will wake up. They will rise. That's the idea. Jesus is the first, right? Full harvest to follow. And so the first characteristic of this full harvest that we see in, in verses 20 to 28 is specifically that Jesus' resurrection guarantees the resurrection of believers. He was the first, right? He's the first fruits, but then there is going to be more to follow, specifically dead followers of Christ who will be raised to life. He goes on to explain this dynamic. Watch verse 21. This is the, 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 the representative headship kind of principle to make this uh, help, the, help us understand how this works. He says in verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So this is just logical argumentation here, two lines. The first line is, For as uh, by a man came death. This man was Adam, and because of Adam's sin, sin entered the world, death entered the world. So death came through one man, but it affects everyone. So it affects the whole group. Adam is our head, 
he was the first, and yet in Adam we have all experienced uh, sin and we experience death. But, verse 21, that's just, the, that's just the principle. The second part is the takeaway. He says, okay, as by a man came death, also by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. So, if Adam brought in death, Jesus brings life. He brings the resurrection of the dead. Those who are in Christ will be resurrected to life. Now, the, the two groups aren't exactly the same. Watch verse 22. He explains, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's two different groups there. In Adam, all humans die. But in Christ, all those who are in Christ, all those who belong to Christ, will be raised to newness of life. We will be made alive. Jesus is the first, full harvest to follow. The first aspect of that full harvest is the resurrection of saints. So our resurrection in the future is a necessary result of Jesus' resurrection right, on our behalf. So we're connected to Christ by faith, and so we will be raised to life just as Jesus was. And then the Apostle Paul gets into basically the breakdown of the order of the full harvest. Watch verse 23. He says, but each in his own order, or in his own rank, according to his own rank. Christ the firstfruits, then, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, and then verse 24, then comes the end. If we'll just pause there, okay? So kind of three, three uh, orders or three bullet points in the order here. Christ is the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So if you're wondering, well, when will I be resurrected from the dead? The answer is when Christ returns. So there is a day that Christ will return. So he told the disciples that's what's going to happen. It's been talked about in Scripture in many places. So when Christ returns, okay, uh, the, the, what's going to happen is the dead in Christ will be raised to life. If you go ahead and you, if you flip to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20, that's what you would read about. You would read about Jesus returning. And what happens? That believers are raised first, the first resurrection, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. So Christ is the first fruits, right? And then the full harvest to follow, namely at his return. And of course, after he raises us from the dead, then comes the end. More on that in just a minute. Let's talk for a minute about the relevance of this truth to us. Jesus is the first full harvest to follow. Well, the fact is, we have to ask the question, do I belong merely to Adam or do I belong to Christ? Because there is a difference. There's a difference in our hope. There's a difference in our eternal destiny, right? And so we read a passage like this that talks about, oh yeah, well, all those who are in Christ are raised to newness of life, are raised to eternal life. When we look forward to that, we have to ask the question, well, is that me? Do I belong to Christ? Am I connected by faith to Jesus? And if you're here this morning worshiping at Calvary Baptist Santa Barbara and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to encourage you that in Christ, you will find exactly what you need. Yes, you will find the forgiveness of your sins, absolutely, but you'll also find more. You'll find purpose in this life. You'll find wisdom and discernment to navigate the ups and downs. You'll find hope where maybe there was only despair. But crucially, should the Lord tarry in his return, one day you will die. And when you die, that death is not the end. You will be in the presence of the Lord, and one day you will be raised physically to eternal life. That's one of the inevitable results of the gospel. So if you're here and you're not a believer, 
you might just ask the question, am I finally ready to confess my sins and trust in Christ? Not just for forgiveness, but for the whole package. Now, I feel like I'm trying to sell you a timeshare on that, but I'm not, right? There's so much more to the gospel than I think we realize. So yes, we need to ask the question, do I belong to Christ? Am I in Christ? But then another application of this glorious truth is that, well, dead believers have a future, that the saints who have died in ages past, that we have a future. And therefore, crucially, we don't have to fear death. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to fear death. Again, should the Lord tarry, we will walk through that dark valley. And by God's grace, He will lead us through that valley. And again, if, if Jesus' return isn't in the near future, there will come a day where you will breathe your last. You don't have to fear that day. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 talks about the fact that in the gospel, we are freed from slavery to the fear of death. And I love that terminology. That, that when we fear death, we are slaves to something that we don't have to be afraid of, that we don't have to be slaves to. In Christ, because he actually rose from the dead, right? Verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised. Therefore, we don't have to fear death. If we are in Christ, we will be raised to that newness of life. You know, it's so funny. In our modern culture that we live in, where we have excellent health care, where the, the standard of living is quite high, we, we tend to kind of grab on to our lives and, and hold on to length of life as being, uh, you know, an absolutely essential component of existence and quality of life being so important. And you know what? A long life, praise God, is a blessing from God. And good health is a blessing from God. But brothers and sisters, God can be glorified even if our lives aren't long. And He can be glorified even if our lives aren't marked by good health. The obsession with health and long life, I, I think, maybe put, points us in the wrong direction, as if Jesus only came to benefit our lives in the immediate short term. But we're playing the long game here, and Christ has been raised from the dead, and so should He tarry and we die, that's okay. It's okay if we die, which releases us from, again, that slavery to this fear, and that fear could cost you. You know, if you live with a daily fear of death, that fear can cost you in your following of Jesus. My friend uh, Charlie Spurgeon, he pastored in London back in the 1800s. He talks about this in one of his sermons. I thought this was helpful to us. He said, fear of death causes some Christian people um, to have to endure many endless sorrows. They are ill and likely to die, and instead of being in a calm state of mind, they are greatly distressed. Spurgeon's like, you're going to get sick and die. You don't have to be distressed. You don't have to be anxious about it. Christ has been raised. It's okay as we endure pain, difficulty, sorrows. This truth uh, has particular relevance for our church back in New Jersey because um, by God's sovereignty, for whatever reason, we have an unusually high number of people who have uh, cancer or undergoing chemotherapy and who likely will not recover. It, it, for the size of our church, it's really abnormal, the number of people who are facing, and it's all kind, different kinds of cancers, different stages of life, and it's heartbreaking, and it's, and it's really difficult to walk through um, those decisions about how much chemo to take, and when, when do you tap out, and, and what strategies are you willing to do, you know, undergo. 
Um, it's all a, a function of sin being in the world, but man, in the middle of all of that, what we don't have to do, even as we navigate and we cry with one another, as we, we hold hands and we do hospital visits and we, we go through the hardship of all that, what we don't have to do is fear death. We don't have to be anxious. And I can tell you that um, there have been several dear saints who recently have gone home to be with the Lord who have been a great encouragement to me because they modeled to me how to die well how to die without fear of death. And, you know, it's so interesting. You go on some of these visits, you visit somebody in hospice at their home. They've had to put their bed downstairs in the living room, right? It's not upstairs anymore, and you're dealing with the reality of all the pain meds. And I go on those visits, and as a pastor, I'm supposed to be the encourager. And I'm telling you, 10 out of 10 times, I leave encouraged more than I did the encouraging. Because God is faithful. Jesus is the first full harvest to follow. The first aspect of that full harvest here is the resurrection of believers to eternal life. The grave couldn't hold him, and brothers and sisters, the grave won't be able to hold us. Secondly, there's more to this harvest. Watch verse 24 as he continues to talk about this this timing at the end, okay? So verse 24, okay, Christ is going to return, and he's going to raise the believers from the dead. Verse 23, verse 24, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Let's just pause there at verse 24. Again, this verse has two kind of equal components to it. All right? The first component is this delivery of the kingdom to God the Father. So the second feature of the full harvest is the delivering of the kingdom to the Father, delivering of Jesus' kingdom to the Father. How cool is this? When Christ returns, right, and, and he, he's going to do this work of eradicating his enemies, we'll get to that in a moment, right, but what is he going to do? He's going to wrap up his kingdom in a gift bag, okay, and he's going to deliver it to his Father, which, again, it just shows that the, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just about the forgiveness of your sins and the forgiveness of my sins, and it's not even just about our future resurrection, although that's bound up in it. The resurrection of Jesus also guarantees the delivering of his kingdom to the Father, which is a statement of the fact that Jesus will succeed in his mission of rescuing sinners, of building his church. This is so cool because it just reminds us that what God is doing cannot be stopped. It doesn't matter what's going on in the headlines. It doesn't matter how dramatic the local politics get. It doesn't matter what physical trials we're facing. Right? Whatever is going on, nobody can stop this train because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is the first, full harvest to follow. Full harvest means resurrection of dead saints, Full harvest means the delivering of his kingdom to his father. But there's a second part here in verse 24. And this is, it's all kind of bound up together. So we wouldn't see a chronological necessary uh, distinction here, but, but two kind of aspects of Christ's return. So then at the end, he's going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now this is the verse that you need when uh, things aren't necessarily going well in your, in your life. The one where Jesus comes in and smokes your enemies, right? Absolutely. Well, maybe not technically your enemies. It's his enemies. Now, what kind of enemies are in mind here? Political? Yes, certainly. Political, right, governments who are resistant to the authority of Jesus, 
they will be removed from the equation upon his return. But it's not just about political enemies. It's also about spiritual enemies. The, the verbiage here, every rule and every authority and power, that language is used in other places in the New Testament to apply to demons, to demonic forces. And so here, the fact of the matter is that when Christ returns, part of his victory is removing all opposition to him, including Satan and demons. Again, if you go back to Revelation 20, that's what happens. Christ returns and he deals with Satan. That's it. Right? That's, that's, that's the end game. Removal of any rebellion to his authority. What about, well, what about physical enemies? Keep going. Watch verse 25. Paul underlines his points with a few Old Testament quotes here. It says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's an allusion to Psalm 8. But then note verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is, what does your Bible say there? Death. Death. Political enemies, Jesus will take them out. Spiritual enemies, not a problem. But even physical enemies, the enemies of sickness and death, Jesus will remove. That's a function of his conquering death and his resurrection. It's guaranteed. The priest has waved the sheaf. The first fruits have already come in. Christ is first. Full harvest to follow. The full harvest entails the resurrection of believers. The full harvest entails the delivering of his kingdom to the Father. And the full harvest entails the defeat of enemies, of all enemies, including death. There's a lot of encouragement here in this passage for you and me. Because this tells us, again, what will the end be like? Where are we headed? Now, this is not a denial of persecution. It doesn't necessarily mean that every church is just going to keep growing until it's a mega church and takes over the whole world. Some people have read this passage in that way, and I think that's a misapplication of it, a misunderstanding of it. But what this passage does give us is the promise of final victory despite opposition. So yeah, the government can turn on believers. That's okay. You know, in, in the Corinthian circumstance, being, uh, you know, subjects to the Roman Empire, you just never knew how local, you know, politics were going to play out. And often in the Roman Empire, local, local politics was, um, was basically against the church. And so the local governors could justify imprisoning Christians, in some cases even executing Christians. And Paul says, yeah, that might happen in the short run, but don't worry, Jesus has been raised from the dead. So he's coming back and he'll deal with it. Now, doesn't, the Roman Empire is one thing, but we live in the United States of America where no bad laws are ever passed. Oh, okay, but we have checks and balances that sometimes work. <laughs> you know, like, listen, it's not a perfect system. It's a broken system because it's a broken world. And our ultimate hope isn't in electing the right party to office or passing just the right, right laws or tweaking the system with this, that, or the other. Brothers and sisters, our ultimate hope is that Jesus will one day deliver his kingdom to his Father, done and dusted, taken care of. And he will defeat all of his enemies, any who stand opposed to him. You might think of Psalm 2 in this regard, where it pictures the nations scheming against the Lord and his anointed. In Psalm 2, the point is the Messiah is going to come and just settle it. Just settle it. And here, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul encourages us about. What we don't often think about is that the defeat of enemies and the completion of God's kingdom work 
right? We don't think often of that being directly tied to the resurrection. But here, Paul says it is. It's a necessary result. Jesus is the first fruits, right? Full harvest to follow. What's the full harvest all about? Our resurrection, yes. The delivering of God's kingdom to the Father, yes. And crucially, the defeat of all those enemies. That day is coming. Believers need to know that they're on the winning team because in the short run, we might not feel like we're on the winning team. And so there's encouragement here. This should give us confidence. It should give us greater discernment. It should also encourage us as we invest in the church, as we invest our time and energy, even material resources. Why would we do that? Because this is what God is doing. This is His work, and it will succeed. You might remember Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus tells us that uh, the gates of hell cannot prevail against His church. You know, that phrase, gates of hell, it's talking about the entrance point into the afterlife. It's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor for death. Death cannot stop the church. Who's death? Jesus' death? Nope. Because in fact, Christ has been raised. What about the death of the apostles? Could that stop the advance of the church, the guys responsible to deliver that gospel, the first generation? A lot of them died, and a lot of them died as martyrs, Could that stop the advancement of God's church? Nope. The gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. Well, let's make it a little bit more personal. What about my death? What about your death? Does that mean that the mission has failed and that the kingdom isn't advancing and that Jesus isn't at work? No. No, because Jesus is the first and the full harvest is to follow. And so by God's grace, hopefully we die well for his glory but even as we die, we are confident in the success of his mission and the advancement of his kingdom and the fact that one day Jesus will deliver it, having defeated his enemies, to the Father. It's a beautiful moment that Paul pictures, and he says it all hinges on the actual resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's not all. There's one more important aspect of this full harvest. Look at verse 27 and 28. Paul tells us, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, if you just pause at the beginning of verse 27. Listen, the English grammar here is going to get a little rough, okay? A little bit of choppy water, all right? But we're going to make it through, okay? We're going to take it one piece at a time. You need to know that the first part of this verse is a quote from Psalm 110, okay? So Paul is, again, linking this this reality of what Christ will do in, in being victorious over his enemies, delivering the kingdom. He's linking that to the messianic, Uh, flavor of Psalm 110. Okay, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet, verse 27, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Okay, some English English translations clarify the reference there for you, which would have been, which would have been helpful, let's just be honest, because it gets a little, gets a little muddy there. Here's what's going on. God the Father will put everything in subjection to God the Son. That's, that's what we're talking about here. But when that happens, the Father is not subject to the Son. And so Paul, it's, it's kind of like he says, listen, I'm going to give you a little bit of, of information here about the Trinity, just so that you know that everything's going to stay in order, okay? Everything's going to be right as it should be. Father and Son. Now, then he explains it, right? So he says in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, that is to Christ, then the Son himself, excuse me, that's God the Father, then when the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, 
that God may be all in all. Now, it's the very end of that verse that we really need to focus on. So here's what he's saying. When everything is done and Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father, okay, the Father still has his position, right, as being the sovereign one. And the Son still has his position of being co-equal with the Father and the Spirit in essence and in glory. So the Son is still just as much God as he, as he is now and always was before. And yet, especially here, there's a focus on the fact that the Son will willingly subject himself to the Father's authority. And it's future tense here. It's looking to the end forever. That's the idea. When he does that, what is the result? Verse 28, the very end, so that God may be all in all. This is my version of this verse. Everything will be right. It will be the way it's supposed to be. The fourth aspect here of the full harvest is the realization of God's will in creation. And I could even get more specific. The realization of God's moral will. So we were joking earlier about how our, our government doesn't always function the way it should. It's not always, always good decisions. It's not always just how it should be. But one day... Because of the resurrection of Jesus, he'll deliver his kingdom to the Father. The Father will retain his position. The Son willingly subjects himself to the Father. The Spirit has done his work, and the church will be in existence with Christ forever, and God will be all in all. That's it. No more rebellion. All enemies will have been removed. No sickness, no suffering, no lawsuits, okay? No failures, right? None of that. It's everything will be good and right the way it should be. That's God's moral will. When everything in creation functions the way God wants it to function and designed it to function, that's his moral will. And that will be a reality on the new earth forever. That's where we're headed. So we can all just breathe a big sigh of relief because even though it's not right now, one day it will be all right. Why? Because Christ has actually been raised from the dead. Paul says, it's a complete package here. And now I'm back to selling timeshares. But just bear with me for a minute, okay? If I could sell you this timeshare, you wouldn't be able to beat it. <laughs> because this is the complete package. It's the whole thing. Does it include the forgiveness of our sins? Absolutely. We already covered that last week. But, I mean, does it include the righting of wrongs? Yes. Does it include the alleviation of physical suffering and death? Yes. Does it include the improvement of the earth so that everything's just right the way it should be? Yes. It's, it includes everything that we could ever hope for and dream for. And that's why, you know, singing a song like, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, the gospel is mysterious because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we find the solution to all of it. And because Jesus conquered sin and death, the, the finishing of the story, the rest of the story, is guaranteed to come about. It's different than in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, there were promises of the end, there were promises of forgiveness of sins, but there was still this waiting, like, when is the Messiah going to come? When is the Messiah going to come? But we live on the other side of the cross. So we're reading the Word of God that says, yes, if Christ hadn't been raised, you'd still be in your sins, but He was raised, so praise God, your sins are paid for. But that's not all that he's doing. He's doing so much more. Again, the fourth aspect of the full harvest here is the realization of God's will in creation. No more rebellion. In passages like this, where we get a little, a little bit of extra information about the Trinity, we can often want to chase those conversations, and those are good conversations to have. But don't miss the point. 
The point here is that God may be in all, right, overall. That's where this is all headed. And so we have to say that the Son is equal to the Father in glory. The Son is still just as much God as the Father is in the Spirit, but also that the Son will willingly subject himself to the Father's authority, and that seems to be a feature of eternity. And so that's all we can say. We can't necessarily easily reconcile that, but there it is. Why does it matter to us? Because this is where we are headed, which means because Christ has actually been raised from the dead, we don't need to despair. I don't know what it might be for you, but uh, there are circumstances in my life that can, can put me on the short track to despair pretty quickly. When certain things go wrong, and it's different for everybody, when certain things go wrong, we can get very frustrated and discouraged, right? But brothers and sisters, you need to know that when you hit those bumps in your life, guess what? Christ has still been raised from the dead. And Jesus is first, full harvest to follow. Nobody can stop it. So don't despair. Yes, we, we cry. Yes, we mourn the challenges that we face. Yes, we have to deal with problems. But don't despair. Don't give in to this idea that, oh, it'll never work out and these problems will never be solved and there's no hope. There's definitely hope because that tomb is definitely empty. So don't despair. Christ is risen. Another, I think, application of this beautiful truth is don't waste your life. And this is one of those kind of reminders I think we often get in the New Testament where even in the midst of, of deep doctrinal reflection, we have an encouragement to do something about it. Paul's trying to deal with very practical, like daily problems in the Corinthian church, right? Compromise, worldliness, giving into sin. And his solution is to give them an in-depth explanation of the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead, which means from Paul's line of thought, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the death and resurrection of Jesus should impact the way you live each day. Don't waste your life. Because what, this is what's not going to happen, okay? You're not going to get to the resurrection, whatever day that is, okay? We're not going to get to the resurrection and be like, oh man, I wish I had spent more time mastering that video game. Like that was, I just should have done that, right? I wish I had, I wish my golf handicap was two strokes lower, right? All will be good. Your handicap's going to be nice and low on the new earth without having to have lessons. Praise the Lord, Okay? That's one of the implications of this passage, kind of, all right? So we're headed there. So we don't have to waste our lives. And of course, pursuit of, of recreation is not a waste. But when all we do is pursue recreation, we've got a problem. I think this is one of the major sinful kind of subtleties of our culture, where we are obsessed as a culture with entertainment. We have screens in front of us all the time, always having to be entertained, and I think there is a reality for acknowledging that that pursuit of entertainment could cause us to waste our time and energy. Time and energy that we could be using to glorify God and actively engage in the advancement of his kingdom. It will succeed, but we want to be laboring for that success, not distracted on our phones while God is doing that work. Just maybe a, a reminder here not to waste our life. Christ has actually been raised. The full harvest is coming. So we don't want to be too distracted. Another practical application here of this truth, don't forget the gospel. You may have heard it said that Christians should preach the gospel to themselves daily. That's very helpful information. Okay? That's good advice. But the, the issue is why. 
The reason why we need to preach the gospel daily is because the gospel isn't just about the forgiveness of sins. It's about the whole package. And so we need to remember on a daily basis, whatever I'm going to face today, Christ actually rose from the dead. And so I have confidence moving forward in faith as I go to work, as I go to school, as I deal with this issue with my family, whatever I'm up against, I can move forward in faith because Christ has actually been raised from the dead. He's first, full full harvest to follow. I'm okay, right? I move forward in faith. If we neglect the gospel, if we forget about the death and resurrection of Jesus, we'll lose sight of what matters most. We'll misdiagnose our issues. We'll fail to discern where we really need to be engaged in our conversations and our energy, our time. And the fact is, we could slip very quickly into that same situation that the Corinthian church found itself in. Compromising, giving into worldliness, chasing sin, not doing what God has put us here to do, just to pursue Him, right, in confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is the first full harvest to follow. What is your only comfort in life and death, they asked. 1563, Heidelberg Catechism. Listen to this answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. He assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. What is our hope in life and death? It's that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. The question is, are we willing and ready henceforth to live unto him? Would you please pray with me? And we'll ask God to help us be ready to do just that. Lord, we thank you for 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. We thank you for these glorious truths, which, Lord, in some sense are basic truths, but in other senses, Lord, they are big, complicated, eternal realities. Jesus, we praise you that you did die for our sins and that you actually rose from the dead. And we thank you that you are the first fruits that the full harvest is guaranteed to follow. And Lord, we thank you for these, just these little reminders here of what the full harvest entails. Lord, our resurrection, Lord, free us from slavery to the fear of death through the gospel. Lord, we pray that we would not be afraid to die, but we would be confident even as we walk through those dark valleys. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the relevance today of the fact that one day, Lord Jesus, you will deliver your kingdom to the Father. Lord, we thank you that one day you will put all your enemies in subjection under your feet, including death. And Lord, we thank you that what we long for, what we desperately need most, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that that day is coming. 
because you have been raised. So Lord, help us to live in light of these truths. Lord, help us if we, if we have been wasting our time, if we've been giving in to despair, if we've been forgetful of the gospel, Lord, help us to confess that as sin and to turn to you. And Lord, may we be encouraged today to walk by faith with confidence because in actuality, Lord Jesus, you rose from the dead. We praise you for that victory. We praise you for the victory to come. And we ask that you would help us now in the meantime to live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.